0: Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. All right. I, I, I have to know. I don't know why I have to know. But I, I want to know.
1: <laughs> I was up are... last night thinking about this.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. And not just three minutes before we hopped on this call today. <laughs> uh, are you a fan of Fleetwood Mac?
1: Fleetwood Mac. I really like Fleetwood Mac. But I feel like I never – I haven't gotten fully into it. I have a real surface-level love of Fleetwood Mac popular songs
0: that was a heck of a pregnant pause
1: yeah well i was trying to figure out how to say because like i like them a lot i like i like them when i hear them
0: gotcha see that's i feel like that's a good way of putting it yeah Yeah.
1: and i have their albums right sure um but yeah but i'm not like they're not my go-to
0: fair enough do you have a do you have a favorite song or, or songs song songs that come to mind when you think of fleetwood
1: there's a lot. Um, but I like <laughs> I like go your own way. I like of course gypsy, um, landslide with like one quiet tear coming down
0: oh,
1: your cheeks. So what about you? Do you like a do you do you like Fleetwood?
0: Yeah, I feel like I feel like my my understanding or my familiarity with them is similar to yours. That yeah, it's I've I don't know if I've heard a Fleetwood Mac song that I didn't like. In addition to ones you mentioned, I like the chain a lot, it has a really good like when the chorus hits, oh, the it's really driving. Um yeah. for legal reasons, you're not any people aren't hearing any of these things. They're so gonna have to do some Googling on their own. But yeah, I don't I don't know. Like who doesn't like Fleetwood Mac?
1: Who doesn't like Fleetwood Mac? I don't know. You say you don't like the songs, but you had a really um strong reaction to Tusk.
0: Oh. I didn't love Tusk. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. I got to
1: watch you <laughs> I got to watch you hear it for the first time in real time. It was like those YouTube videos.
0: (laughs) There's a reason why this is an audio-only medium. (laughs) Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon.
1: And I'm Vicki Thompson.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so there is, as always, a uh, reason why we muddled through a discussion about uh, Fleetwood Mac. And so, to help explain it, I'm going to bring in the producer for this episode, Molly McGid. Hi, Molly. Hi, Shane. Okay, so why why Fleetwood Mac?
2: It's a good question. Their <laughs> song. <laughs> that is the question.
0: Oh, I love the sign. I, all right, here we go. <laughs>
2: I know it's like everything that has gone on in my head. I'm trying to explain. Um, okay, so their song "Landslide" has been stuck in my head the whole time I've been working on this episode because we'll be talking about landslides. <laughs> and you know, I was also really partial to "I Feel the Earth Move" under my feet by Carol King. Oh, that's a good one, but you can't just you
1: can't just say it. You have to you have to sing it. I'm not going to sing it.
0: Come on, Vicky, sing it.
1: I feel it's the earth move <laughs> like that. You have to really.
0: Oh, man, mm. that was, I, I, I just, I can't. All right. So we're just going to keep, <laughs> we're just keep powering through this. So beyond, uh, beyond this kind of musical exploration of songs related to natural disasters, what you said landslides, but like, what yeah. are we actually getting into today?
2: Well, we talked with Dr. Richard Iverson, who's a geologist studying landslides, how they move and how to predict them.
1: And to remind everybody, this is part of our current mini-series, where we talk to scientists who have written for AGU's science storytelling journal, Perspectives of Earth and Space Scientists.
0: Great! Let's hear from Richard.
3: My name is Richard Iverson. I am a research scientist emeritus at the U.S. Geological Survey's Cascades Volcano Observatory.
2: And what is your research about?
3: In a, in a single word, landslides, but that's that's a little bit simplistic. Really what the great majority of my work is focused on is is a type of high-speed landslide called uh, debris flows and then sort of their close relative, debris avalanches. And The only real important difference between those two is that debris flows are generally saturated with water, and um, partly as a consequence of that, they're more mobile than debris avalanches. But both of them can move really fast, meaning hundreds of miles an hour in some circumstances, which, of course, makes them um, very significant hazards. Can
2: we back up just a little bit? I'm not sure I know what a landslide is. Could you explain it?
3: well a landslide is really any um, mass of of earth material that moves down slope under the action of gravity and so landslides range from those that move imperceptibly slowly i've studied one slow-moving landslide that moves less than a meter a year on average and that can continue for centuries or even millennia and then at the other extreme are these high-speed kinds of landslides that happen abruptly, usually on big mountains, and in the the case of landslides I study, largely on volcanoes, but they they can literally move hundreds of miles an hour. You know, they happen at all all scales and all speeds, and um, yeah, so there's a great diversity of things that we all lump together and call them landslides.
1: Okay, so that's interesting that there's such a range in landslide speed. I've only thought about the ones that happen really quickly and suddenly.
0: Right. Like Richard mentioned ones that can last for centuries or millennia. I mean, that's incredibly slow. Mm.
2: Right. He said you wouldn't even be able to see that sort of landslide moving. You have to use special instruments to measure them and detect them.
0: So... Okay, so speaking of detecting and measuring landslides, like how, how how does one, like how does he do that?
2: Well, a lot of Richard's work has been around just how to do that, actually study landslides because they can happen very abruptly.
3: You generally don't know when they're going to occur. And just as important, you really don't know how big they're going to be in advance. And so, you know, if you take the research approach of, well, we'll set up equipment here in this locality thinking we'll catch the next one you know maybe the next one is ten times bigger than you anticipated and it simply sweeps all your equipment away that's that's actually happened to me in one instance fortunately we weren't there at the time but it took all our equipment away and so really it's it's for that reason that a big part of my research career ended up being devoted to conducting experiments lab style experiments but at a very large outdoor scale and the beauty of doing controlled experiments is that we can control so many things about the landslide we're studying. We control its size, we control when it's going to happen, at least to a large degree. We control its composition, you know, what 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 kinds of sediments is it made of, um, how much water does it have in it, and so forth. And so that really, um, you know, doing those kinds of experiments was sort of a major crux of, of my career, even though what attracted me to the field in the first place was was the field experiences. You know, that's always the exciting part for most geophysical scientists is actually seeing the real thing out in the field.
2: So you're making a landslide in the field. How I just can't wrap my head around that. What is that what does that look like? What what do you have to bring in to actually make them?
3: Sure. So so the way we did it was we built a unique large-scale experimental facility. And so other people have, have triggered landslides in the field by taking a natural slope and adding water. That's the usual strategy to try to get it to go. We tried that as well, and it just didn't work out very well for us. And so we ended up building this big facility, which um, at the time was unique. Any place in the world, there was nothing like it. And it enabled us to, you know, sort of manufacture a set of what in the mathematical world we call initial and boundary conditions. Meaning, we we have all kinds of ways of constraining exactly what's going on at the onset of motion, um, the kind of surface the landslide will be moving across, its composition, and so forth. And that really allows us to, to sort of zero in on some important aspects of the process that would be very difficult to parse out just based on, on field observations or data.
2: So you're putting material into this machine or into this design thing? You put in like rocks and soil and water?
3: yeah so sure our our we, we called this facility the the debris flow flume the usgs debris flow flume and what it basically is is just a big concrete chute on a steep hillside and and by by big I mean it's about a hundred meters long it's um, two meters wide, one point two meters deep and it's steep it's on a thirty one degree slope and thirty one degrees is about the angle that for example, a pile of sand would, would stand it. If you make the pile of sand as steep as possible and then just let the sand sort of slide down on its own, that's about 31 degrees. It's, it's pretty steep. It's steeper than most rooftops. It's, it's steeper than most ski slopes. You, know, it's, it's, you know, So it's not a trivial amount of slope to work on.
2: That sounds like the most extreme and fun playground slide.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, these experiments, doing these experiments, which I was involved with for, well, really close to 30 years, it really is a lot of fun. You know, there's an awful lot of hard work involved as well, because we're working with large masses of natural or close to natural earth materials, basically meaning, you know, sand and rocks and mud and so forth. And you've got to get that stuff to the top of the slope. Typically, we'd use about 10 cubic meters, and some experiments we'd use use more than that but 10 cubic meters is you know many many tons of material and so we would haul it to the top of the slope using a dump truck and then load it using a front end loader just sort of standard construction equipment but then there was a whole lot of just you know brute force shovel work that needed to be done as well to kind of get it positioned just the way we wanted to install all of our instruments and so forth So you know, I I I would often characterize these experiments as you know ten or twenty seconds of high drama and excitement packed into two or three days of work. You know, Uh, so that the exciting part was over pretty quickly, but it could be really really exciting when we when we let these things go.
2: Yeah, I can imagine watching them. It's just amazing. Do you have any? fun or funny stories either from those experiments or from the field
3: oh yeah i mean there were lots of funny incidents over the years at the flume some of which were sort of contrived some of which were downright scary and funny only in in retrospect i mean what one example of that was um fairly early on just a few years into our experimental work there and we we would have sort of a rotating crew we had a a core group of people who were there for pretty much every experiment but then we'd have helpers who were there just uh, now and then and so one of these infrequent helpers we'd we'd positioned out at the foot of the flume in what we called the runout area to to simply videotape this big you know high speed flow coming down and because he didn't have experience working at the flume, I think he didn't have a real appreciation of just how fast this thing would be coming. And because he was watching it through the viewfinder of a video camera trying to track the the moving front, he didn't really appreciate how rapidly it was approaching him. And so basically, the thing overran him. it it you know it knocked him down. it it <laughs> his his humorous, characterization of the after effect was that every orifice of his body was filled with mud. (laughs) You know, it it knocked him down. And what was most serious is that um, it broke his glasses and a piece of glass got into his eye. And so I had to rush him to the nearest hospital, which was about an hour's drive away down in Springfield, Oregon. And fortunately, you know, at the hospital, they were able to get the glass out and so on, but it was still a pretty traumatizing experience and one that, you know, that we learned from. And we had some other near misses, but 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 I'm also just thinking of of some sort of stunts that were, or practical jokes that were played on me. I remember once we had a a film crew there. And over the years, we had quite a few film crews at the flume because it was an exciting thing to watch. And this particular crew was making a children's program. I don't remember the name of it. It was some sort of a a science program really aimed at young kids. And they had this this childhood star of the program. (laughs) I, I think her name may have been Vanessa, but I'm not certain about that anyway i was working at the top of the flume where i always was when we ran these experiments because i would always you know kind of do the final check to make sure everything was ready at the top before we let this thing rush down the slope and so it was sort of all systems go and i I gave the the go-ahead and and you know the flip the, the switch was flipped and down rushes the debris flow and now i look down at the foot of the flume and here's this this person standing right at the mouth of the flume and just not moving just standing there stock still like waiting for this thing to come down and i screamed at the top of my lungs you know they, they probably heard it in the next county and then i was just horrified to see this this person just being not only overrun by the debris flow but just knocked you know a long distance into the air and so forth well it turned out that what they had done is they had put a dummy at the at the foot of the flume just to make exciting video, I guess, and and did not disclose that to me, <laughs> and so that was that that was a moment of terror on my part when I saw that happen. Oh my
0: gosh! Oh, I'm just, I just I I can't get this picture out of my head. Imagining him screaming, "No, Vanessa!" <laughs> just like at the dummy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if I could find a clip of that episode. I want to know more about it.
0: We'll do some YouTubing and see what we can find.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah same. That would be so funny. Um, but in all seriousness, if it was a real person, that would make for a pretty traumatizing episode of kids' TV.
1: Oh, that's true. I guess rocks hurtling towards you at hundreds of miles an hour. That's not, pretty, that's not funny.
2: Yeah, definitely. But Richard often says people do underestimate how dangerous landslides can be.
3: You know, particularly if people have been living at the foot of a mountain somewhere, and and they've maybe been part of a family that's been living there for generations, and nothing as bad as happened has happened, and so they think of the mountain as being just a a, a stable part of the environment that's really never going to change much, but. Um, then, you know, then something happens, and it might be a dramatic trigger like a big earthquake, but it could also be really no perceptible trigger that things just get weaker with time and then ev- eventually give way. So yes, people often do underestimate the threat. And one really dramatic example of that in my experience was the Oso landslide in northern Washington state um, back in 2014. Which was a case where there was a really by the standards of Washington State, not a very steep slope, not a very tall slope, only about hundred and eighty meters high. And it had been chronically unstable for many years. And people who lived at the foot of that slope were aware of that chronic instability, but it had always just been kind of a I guess what I'd call a nuisance in the sense that it caused a little bit of minor flooding, some debris would come down and partly cross the adjacent river and cause some water to back up and but, but, you know, never a need for people really to evacuate or anything like that. It, w- it was just a nuisance. Um, and then when the Oso landslide happened in ma- in March of 2014, it was it was not only much larger, but also much, much faster than anything that had ever happened there before. And it just, you know, the results were devastating. It was the, the deadliest landslide in the history of the United States, with the exception of one event that occurred in Puerto Rico back, I believe, in the 1970s.
2: How do you communicate with people to try to get them to understand that significance.
3: In terms of communicating, that's, that's really been a big part of my career. And something we finished just recently, just finished this last spring, was a big report on forecasting the behavior of lahars, which are very large volcanic debris flows, basically coming down from the west side of Mount Rainier. And the west side of Mount Rainier is known to be an unstable or potentially unstable sector of Mount Rainier. And so in that case, you know, we, we developed a very detailed numerical model of this process and created not only lots of still graphics, but also animations or movies, movies of, you know, of, of kind of the animated view of these simulation results. And those movies really, you know, for a lot of people, things that, are difficult for them to grasp, just looking at a map, for example, and certainly looking at something like a table of data, you know, seeing those animations where it really looks like the real thing, you know, really, um, I think is an effective tool for communicating the nature of the hazards. And, and you know, in some respects, you know, it can, it can, it can scare people, but it, but it can also um, edify people in other respects, just because it gives them a much more realistic impre- impression of, um, of what could happen. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a young kid. I was interested in dinosaurs. And I remember hearing adults tell me, you know, you just you just can't possibly imagine how big these dinosaurs were. And so in my mind, I developed this picture of of the single footprint of a dinosaur covering, you know, the entire state of Iowa where I grew up or something I mean that's what I imagined when they said you just can't possibly imagine (laughs) and and of course I think the same thing can happen with regard to um, some of these destructive geophysical events that yeah they can be big and bad but but putting constraints on that and providing people with with real information and and movies where they can sort of see something play out in real time you know, it's really effective at communicating the nature of the hazard.
0: Yes. Yeah, this is what communication is what communication's all about. This is why we do this, Vicki, such important work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> such important work. Great reverence. Um, but I think anyone who's listening to the podcast is probably pretty interested in science communication. So they know what you're talking about as well.
0: Right. Okay. So we know that communication is really important, but what else can be done to mitigate or prevent landslides?
3: Well, for the most part, you know, we can't really prevent landslides, except in in rare instances where there's some very high value structure that we know is in potential jeopardy. And so... To give you an example i mean this is i really can't think of a particularly good example in this country but it, but in japan which is a country with a much higher population density of course and also is almost entirely mountainous there are locations where they've gone to extraordinary measures you know to try to stabilize slopes and you know one approach is to to simply drain them to do a bunch of drilling and install various kinds of drains and maybe even pump water out you can also build structural supports, you know, to help hold it in place. Now that that happens in this country too, but generally on a much smaller scale um, with small landslides along highways and that sort of thing. But for the really big landslides, you know, there's really nothing we can do to prevent them, and so it really becomes more a matter of trying to forecast what might happen, and 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 what the probability of that event might be. And the probability is a really tough one because unlike earthquakes for example which which recur on on the same faults over and over again i mean a classic example being the san andreas fault you know landslides the really big ones anyway don't don't recur over and over again on a time scale that really means very much to humans you know maybe Maybe the same volcano flank fails once every hundred thousand years. But a hundred thousand years is a is a number that humans have a hard time, you know, <laughs> dealing with.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. So it's more about just trying to predict and make sure that people are aware of the landslide risk and hopefully there aren't big structures or things in the way that could could cause a big disaster. Mm.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, we, you just mentioned big structures in the way, you know, obviously a better understanding of the hazard can can provide guidance for where you want to situate crucial infrastructure or, or expensive structures or whatever, whatever to try to, um, you know, minimize how much they're jeopardized.
2: That makes a lot of sense. So I know you've had a career that has spanned decades, and you're continuing your career, obviously, but I'm curious, what are you most proud of?
3: I think what I'm most proud of in my career is two things that kind of go hand in hand. One was the fact that we created and successfully operated the Debris Flow Flume, which which to this day is a unique facility um, anywhere in the world, and um, and that really went remarkably well. And the thing is, it was there was a lot of risk involved at the front end of that, you know, because there was there was certainly no guarantee that we were going to be able to make this work and successfully create debris flows and landslides that helped us learn things about about natural events. But that did work out, and and I'm really pleased. Um, that it did, and also the fact that it it um enabled lots of other people to be involved with that work and and um you know that has now kind of propagated and is carrying down to a new generation of of researchers and so forth um and then hand in hand with that, along with all of the um the experiments. The whole time I was working on development of mathematical models to simulate these events. And as it's turned out, that has that has paid nice dividends as well because the model um, beginning about um, eight years ago really reached a point of fruition where it really became a, a useful practical tool. And so now we really are using that model to make real world hazard assessments and um, you know, and to create these animations that we can show to people to help them understand the nature of the hazard and so forth. And so I feel, I feel really good about the fact that the work has had a a real practical application.
2: What is the most fun or exciting part of your work?
3: Well, I would say the most fun part. So I, right now I'm involved in a little um, consulting project just here on my local mountain mount Mount hood which i can see right outside my window here and, and what's fun about that is is just going out and uh so, so so the issue there concerns um potential hazards to a dam that's going to be rebuilt um downstream from the north side of mount hood and so the question is you know, what is the likelihood that some sort of big flow event, a landslide or a lahar or something could, could impact that dam. And what's fun about that is I basically get to go out and hike around and kind of draw on all my prior experience to kind of, you know, put this into some rather, you know, compact and coherent package to explain to people, you know, what, what the issues are or are not in that location. And that's just, it's, it's fun and it's gratifying. Um, i mean that's that's not the most exciting part the most exciting part was was when you know we were making original discoveries at the at the debris flow flume and and literally learning things that nobody had ever learned before and you know anytime you um anytime you feel that you've been managed to do that that you've had an insight that no one to your knowledge has had before that's that's just a real um real source of excitement
2: yeah absolutely could you tell me in one or two sentences why your research is so important?
3: I think the research that, uh, that we've done and others have done on landslide and debris flow dynamics is important um, because of the role that it can play in informing people of what hazards are and then taking necessary steps to reduce people and, and properties vulnerability to those hazards.
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, it's about the people.
3: Right.
1: That's a really nice sentiment.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's it's it's just like this podcast. We're all about the people as well.
1: Mm, you're really on your soapbox today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know what to say, and I, I don't. I don't know, something just about Fleetwood Back just puts me in the mood. Ew.
2: Oh man, I did not realize I was gonna bring this energy into the episode. Uh I guess all I can really say now is I think I'm gonna have to go my own way. Oh. <laughs> go your own way.
0: Yeah, see? See, Vicki, you did it before. Shane, you have such a
2: beautiful singing voice.
0: Oh, yeah. My my awful falsetto. Yeah. We'll (laughs) we'll just, uh, we will leave things there for now. And so that is all from Third Pod from the Sun.
1: Thanks so much to Molly for bringing us this story and to Richard for sharing his work with us.
0: This episode was produced by Molly with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Jay Steiner.
1: And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: Thanks all, and we'll see you next week.
1: Can you hear them upstairs now? No. Okay, because everyone is home upstairs.
0: Oh, what are are they doing? Are they having a dance party? Are they listening to Fleetwood Mac? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's like what would be the Fleetwood Mac song that they would dance to? Well,
1: definitely go your own way. But Definitely go your own way, Gypsy, right? I feel like that's a good one. Especially Which one? Gypsy?
0: Oh yeah, Gypsy would be good.
1: Yeah, because it's like for Olivia like anything that she could get like a good spin going for my daughter. <laughs> that's Is a it- good one.
0: Isn't the? I feel like I, we we were looking at the videos beforehand. Mm-hmm. I feel like um I feel like the gypsy video is kind of whimsical as yeah. well.
1: Well, everything that Stevie Nicks wears is like scarves and like lots of things that flow.
0: Fair is your is that your daughter's aesthetic?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when dancing, for sure.
0: When dance, I think she has, a she'll be like, outfit she puts on for. for well, dancing. yeah, she'll
1: be like pause this and she'll run in the other room and get on like That's... a dancing outfit.
0: That is amazing. And then, okay, ready. Oh, I love that. Starting again, yeah. Oh,
1: she's a little stevie.